Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. We have with us for our segment this morning, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, who is the representative for the 1st Hampshire District. She is with us every month, and we really appreciate the time, Representative. Well, for our listeners who are saying, wait a second, 1st Hampshire District, I think that includes Northampton. I know Lindsay <laughs> Sabadosa has Northampton, but it's not your only, not the only community you represent. No, it is not. Uh, it is the largest, but it is not the only. I represent nine communities. So the city of Northampton, and let's see if I can do this alphabetically. We're going to try, all right? Chesterfield, Cummington, Goshen, Hatfield, Plainfield, uh, let's see, uh, Williamsburg, Worthington, and I messed up. It's West Hampton before Williams. William, West Hampton, Williamsburg, <laughs> Worthington. There we go. Okay, very good. That was more of an alphabetical issue than it was uh, listing all the towns. Yeah, I, th- I think you did extremely well. Alphabet with a gl- small glitch. Just small one glitch. small glitch. Small glitch. Okay. I'd like to uh, mm-hmm. ask you about a article that caught my attention. Uh, I think this was in the Republican, and it talked about two bills, one of which you are a sponsor of with regard to sex work yes. in Massachusetts. So there are a couple of different bills. Why don't you tell us the uh, uh, status of those pieces of proposed legislation? Sure. So there, there are actually more than just two pieces of bills. There are, there are several pieces of legislation that have been filed in this field. And um, for those listening, it may seem like, well, why why is Massachusetts thinking about this? But this is something that the state has thought about because in Massachusetts, we've been making laws for a really long time. So uh, we have a lot of things that we call archaic laws. And those are laws that were maybe put on the books back in 17-something. Cool. And what? archaic. Archaic. Archaic okay. laws. That's not a technical legal term. That's just, <laughs> just, just, just what the they thing are. We're calling them. <laughs> yes, yes okay. not the technical technical legal term. I don't know if there is a technical legal term. But um, so we have been trying to look at what those archaic laws are. And last session in the Senate, they did pass um, a piece of this legislation, which would eliminate uh, the charge of common night walking. So sort of um, something that you think of like in Jack the Ripper days, people walking the streets, which is not not particularly common anymore, uh, can often be used to arrest people for, you know, just walking the streets. Right. But that is, as I recall, actually still in the law, common night walking, I believe under chapter 272, section 53. Oh, you're showing off. I think that's true. (laughs) I don't know. People will call and say I'm wrong, but I think that's right. It is true that it is still part of the statute in Massachusetts. And it's something that's not really used and something that could be easily repealed. So um, last session, there was a group of legislators that got together and said, okay, so where are some of these archaic laws that we should be looking at? Common night walking being one of them. Um, there are certainly many um, that affect the LGBTQ community um, that really just need to be taken off the books because they're not enforced. So a lot of this conversation sort of came from that discussion. We have a lot of laws. We don't always enforce them. And the way they're enforced is often unfair and doesn't really do what we're trying to do. It's not solving the policy or the societal problem that we're hoping that it will. Right. I, th- th- this is not the first time that the legislature has looked at a archaic laws or laws that make no sense or things that are unconstitutional. I believe we still have on the books in Massachusetts a law against blasphemy. Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Um, we have a damn. Yes. We still have that law. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so doing a comprehensive review of the the full statute and eliminating those laws is something that I would like to see done. And one of the bills that I filed along with Representative Jay Livingstone would do just that. It would look at these archaic laws and sort of set up a process for saying, do we really need a law in the books that bans blasphemy? Probably not. Um, But the conversation around sex work and what we should do with the laws around sex work did sort of derive from that conversation because there are there are, are really multiple schools of thought on on this issue. Um, so some of the bills that have been filed, the bill I filed, uh, offers a full decriminalization of sex work. And that is a, that what that means very practically is it decriminalizes. So you cannot be arrested for buying or selling sex. And I want to be clear that sex work is broad, right? It's, there's, there's lots of ways in which that can occur. I know a lot of people are like, oh, this is just about prostitution, but there are things that happen online where there's actually no physical contact. Like there's, there's a a wide range of things that can be defined as sex work. So let's just, as a baseline, make sure we have that definition. Um, And so the reason that we are talking that in my legislation, we're talking about full decriminalization is because we're trying to not solve the problem of why are people selling or buying sex? I'm not sure that's a problem that can be solved. Selling and buying and sex has occurred for, I, I believe, quite some time. I'm going to pause to let Bill make a joke because I see it coming. No, 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 no. I have the right to remain silent and I will. Um, and so uh, really the, the problem that w- the, I, the, the issue that we're trying to solve with this legislation is how do we make that act of buying and selling sex um, the, the least harmful as possible, right? This is really a le- piece of legislation that falls within that question of harm reduction. Um, a very similar to lots of legislation that I file and support around uh, the use of substances. We know that people are going to continue to use substances. Making them illegal has not stopped people from using substances. They keep doing it. So how do we do it in a way that protects health and safety? Not only of them, but of the community. Exactly. Okay. So a couple of different bills, because there are different couple of different approaches to this issue of sex work yes. and how to either regulate or tax or otherwise make it safer since people do it yep. and will continue to do it. And we would point out that the law has been on the book for, I don't know, hundreds of years and it has not stopped it. Absolutely not. All that having been said, so what are the different approaches? Well, so there are, the, there are two models really out there. And so the first is, is the one that I talked about, the full decriminalization model. And if we look uh, globally at what that looks like, we don't have a ton of examples. People like to point to Nevada, but I would say that Nevada is only, uh, there are certain counties in which uh, sex work has been fully decriminalized. Um, So if we look at Reno, actually Las Vegas is not one of those counties, ironically, um, even though it's the most populous. But in other counties in Nevada, they have had a full decriminalization uh, approach, which um, we have seen uh, lower rates of STIs. Um, There's been no HIV transmission, and there has been um, less violence towards sex workers, because I I will say that is one of my primary concerns. And I've spoken to a lot of people who engage in this profession, and they talk about violence and the ability to share information being very critical because if someone, uh, a client is particularly violent, they want to be able to let other people know that so that no one else is harmed by that individual. And they also want to feel safe calling the police. If your profession is criminalized, you're not going to do that. So 
there is Nevada, some counties and in Nevada. And there's New Zealand. And there's Amsterdam. In there, well, yes. so so yes, there is Amsterdam. Yes, and um, and but I think the bigger the bigger and, and broader example is actually New Zealand, oh. um, which has fully decriminalized sex work. And so we're looking at statistics coming out of New Zealand, um, which again show the same things: uh, decreased rates of um, STI, so sexually transmitted infections, um, and less violence. And so those are really uh, positive outlooks. One of the bills, as I understand it would decriminalize the sex work, but not those who uh, are engaged in trying to sell it. So the Johns, for example, would, would still be subject to criminal prosecution. And there is another concern, there's a serious concern, because while I fully support the idea of decriminalizing sex work, I am concerned about potential human trafficking, which is part of the conversation. So tell us about that. Absolutely. So the second model, and there is a proposed piece of legislation around this, is something that's uh, often referred to as the Nordic model. And the reason it's called that is because this is um, an example that's been taken from countries like Finland and Sweden, where they have, as you said, decriminalized the, um, the selling of sex, but not the purchase of sex. Ah, okay. So um, that means you are free to offer services, but you are just not free to partake of them. Um, and which, so, which just seems that part seems a little. I mean, there seems to me that there's a significant difference in the persons who are promoting it as, as as an economic model and making money off it for themselves and are not engaged in the sex work themselves. Uh, the customer, it seems to me, is in a very different situation. Right. Well, so I would say, you know, those who are uh, in favor of that model would say that um, it it is uh, a way that supports moving people out of uh, the sex trade, that they can um, more easily make other decisions and uh, they can go to the police if there is a problem. So it, it opens that door for them. It also opens the door to um, to more testing and public health measures for the sex worker, um, which are all very positive things and things that we want. I would argue that the problem in that model is that um, if you are selling something and that transaction is fundamentally illegal, there is still a, a there's always sort of a balance of power right to the buyer in sex work. And that's that's something that we hear from sex workers. Uh, it gives the, the buyer even more power in that equation, though, because now the buyer is going to be concerned of their potential arrest. It pushes the industry further into the shadows to a great extent because you have buyers who are afraid to buy. And, um, and as we've seen in statistics, again, out of the Nordic countries that have implemented this model, it often results in more violence towards sex workers. Um, because you know you have situations where uh, a John would rather beat up someone than the, let that person go and report something to the police. So it actually um, can have negative consequences. This idea of decriminalized sex work has actually been around in Massachusetts for decades and decades. I'm interested whether or not this is actually a legislative possibility. It seems to me, given the power of various religious institutions, it is unlikely still. But nonetheless, the arguments for decriminalized sex work are really powerful. And I'm wondering, <laughs> I, I, you, you introduced your legislation. There are uh, other, other bills that we've now talked about. Any possibility this actually is going to receive legislative action? I think that this is going to be implemented in steps. 
Um, so I think that the, what I spoke about at the beginning, the archaic laws, getting things like common night walking off the books, I think you're going to see um, traction around that. In fact, that bill was passed by the Senate last year. Um, so just as proof, there there is some, some traction and, and conversation and a desire to do something. I think for the question of full decriminalization versus partial decriminalization. I think that we're not there yet because there is such disagreement. And what muddles the conversation, and you've mentioned this several times, is the question of human trafficking. And the, and the argument that there's exploitation no matter how you cut this. Absolutely. But I would also say that what happens, if, if, we, if we look at the argument only from a human trafficking perspective and we say that um, there is no ability for a sex worker to consent to sex because there is always a, a, an imbalance of power, then we're also taking away um, autonomy and uh, and authority from those who decide to go into sex work, which I would argue is is an anti-feminist position. Well, it's the same arguments made against uh, uh, adult entertainment. Uh, Those women can't possibly want to be taking off their clothes, and therefore they're being exploited, therefore we'll ban it and make it illegal and send everyone to jail. Right. Including them. Yes. And and I would say that that's paternalistic and that, you know, people can make decisions on their own and we should let people make those decisions because, again, they've been making them forever. Uh, and if we are off, if we are decriminalizing, then at least we're in a position where we're not arresting. We can make the industry safer. And if people then want to leave and transition to other things, they can do that. I would like to, I, I'd like to note that I have uh, no bad jokes, well, maybe one <laughs> or two, but no bad jokes. Um, it's it a, wouldn't it's a, be your show without one or two bad jokes. But it's Bill. a serious issue. It and, is. And, and, and it's, it's worthy of consideration. So thank you for bringing it up with the legislature. I really appreciate that. Representative Sabadosa. <clears throat> okay, one bad joke. While we're talking about common night workers, let's transition to other trans- transportation issues. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, that was tra- a rough transition. Yeah, that was bad. That was <laughs> yeah. bad. Okay. But there is, in fact, a major, uh, I don't know if it's a conference, a uh, event, a uh, uh, unpacking of transportation issues here in western Massachusetts and across the state happening today. So tell us about that. So there are, there are two things happening today. Uh, one is an economic development forum that's happening this afternoon at Springfield Technical Community College. So uh, Secretary Howe, um, who leads uh, the, I, I think it is still the Department of uh, Housing and Community Development, although those are soon to be split for the administration, but she definitely handles the, the development side of things. She will be out here along with many others um, from state government trying to get input into what the Commonwealth's economic plan should be for the next four years. So they'll be creating a blueprint for the Healy administration to understand um, what kind of business do we want to see? How can we foster that business? How can we help grow our economy? So it's a really important meeting because this is the first time the Healy administration is doing that, um, only because they're brand new. Um, But it is going to set the tone and the agenda for four years. So that's really critical. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, there are some very immediate and important and significant issues regarding transportation here in Northampton and in the surrounding communities that you represent. We're going to talk about those right after this break. More 
Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. A nice looking lawn. You can do it. Rent a dethatcher, aerator, and an overseeder. Get the garden planted. Rent a rototiller, a flower bed edger. Hi, it's Jim from TJ's Rental. Renting the right tools and equipment makes your project a breeze. We'll show you how to use them, and you'll love the results. Rent a leaf blower, a chipper, and a stump grinder. What projects do you want to tackle? Rent the tools and equipment from TJ's in Hadley and South Hadley. I'm ready to help you. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things? Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadoza, the representative for the 1st Hampshire District. We have been talking about economic development and transportation, a lot of issues here in western Massachusetts and in your district in particular with regard to transportation, some small only small in terms of relative amounts of money needed to solve the problems, Mm -hmm. and some enormous, like east-west rail. I'll take them in whichever order you like. (laughs) So we we mentioned the Economic Development Forum today. In addition to that, the governor's office, uh, in conjunction with the Department of Transportation, is going to be releasing their capital improvement program. Um, So we call that the SIP, the CIP. And uh, yes, it's this on, is something we sip on. We sip on. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, but it's it's a really important plan because it, it sort of talks about where the state's priorities are in terms of transportation funding. And uh, this is something that's constantly evolving. It does come out every year, but it is also a four year plan. So as things change and move up and down as a priority, there's um, there's a little bit of wiggle room. But this first presentation, again, first presentation from the Healy administration is is significant because it does include a lot of the projects that we've been talking to them about, you know, since before the election. Um, so for the local community, you're going to see um, in Northampton things like the the Main Street redesign project, which is really exciting to see the governor prioritize and put into that that planning. Um, so what the state's commitment is going to be to that. You see, um, I, I will against. Well, we're, we, the people of Northampton, are counting on the state yes, putting in the amount yes, of money that's indeed. been budgeted for it. 
Right. No, indeed. We're, 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 the governor has actually put in more than I think um, we had asked her for. So that's, that's great. Um, we should, I should just remind uh, everyone listening that a lot of this money is coming through bonding. So I know that sometimes people get really upset because they look at the state budget and they're like, why is the money for the redesign not in the state budget? And the reason for that is the state budget, as I think a lot of folks know, has to be a balanced budget, right? So it's what money is coming in and what money is going out. But that doesn't mean the state doesn't have other ways to handle spending. And one of those things that we do is through borrowing, through bonds. So those really big projects tend to not just be in that fiscal year budget. They tend to be in the bonds because that way you can, you know, you spend some money this year, you spend some money next year, but it's not coming directly out of the state budget. I hope that is uh, is clear. The bond is paid for. I mean, the bonds are repaid. The yep, interest is paid. Mm-hmm. And that money comes it's a separate account than the state budget for the repayment of the principal and interest? For primarily, yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So So we've got things like the, the redesign project. We also have a lot of support for, for East West Rail and for the North South Corridor because it's important we don't forget that North South Corridor and continue to improve it. Um, so just as an example, you see a lot of work for different uh, platforms, including the Northampton platform. Um, and then I will say one of my favorite projects that's been included in this, um, which is just a small, tiny thing, but that will make life better for people. Um, is that there's finally a recognition of a need to create a shared lane uh, along 5 and 10. So leaving the city of Northampton, heading towards East Hampton, Holyoke, and passing the Atwood Healthcare Facility and the court, um, if you live in the area. The, pro- the probate and family the court. probate and family court. And a big health center. And a big health center, yes. And there is a big problem. It's maybe a little project in the scheme of millions it's of dollars for problem. transportation, but it's a big problem. It's and, a big problem. And, the, and you say a shared lane. What's the big problem? Well, the big problem is that a lot of people need to get to both of those locations, and they need to get there on a daily basis uh, in, in a lot of cases. And there is no way to walk, bike, or, or it, take any sort of... And use any mode of transportation that is not a vehicle right now. And if when you do that, when you're walking, you can walk on the edge of the road, but you're passing major, <laughs> major entrances to 91 and the exit to 91, and it's pretty dangerous. So uh, the question is whether the state will help pay for this for yes. a, a new lane. For well, and this is a state road, so this is, this is really up to the state to do. This is not up to the city. Um, so this is state planning. It needed to be done. It hasn't been done, and there's money in this SIP to make sure that it is done. Okay, so what can we do to help SIP <laughs> on, on this, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll forget the bad point. What do we do? Well, th- that's a great question because the first thing that happens when a SIP comes out is that we look for public comment. So the SIP is being presented today, um, I believe on uh, Tuesday night of next week. I hope I'm right. You can. Sub- there will be a hearing where people can attend and they can submit testimony if they want. They can also submit testimony in writing. They can send it to me. They can send it to the Department of Transportation. But this is the, the moment for the community to rise up and say, this is what you got right, this is what you forgot, this is what still needs to happen. Right. The state paid for that improvement. You a little loose on that. No, it was an improvement. I mean, five that, that road needed, yes. needed major construction yep. improvement. But this is a problem. This is a huge problem. And agreed. I, I you know, drive that road a lot because I have to get on 91 and I see people in wheelchairs trying to maneuver down the side of the road. Uh, it's it's a huge problem. And there, so just to be clear, 
there is money in the budget now? There for is this? money in the SIP for this. And so, assuming this has public support, that construction could start soonish. It could. It, it will. Well, soonish is is hard to say in state government, but um, but it will rise to be a priority, and that is, uh, I think, a significant change. We leave it on that optimistic note. We've been speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative for the 1st Hampshire District, who is with us every month. Thank you so much for your time, Representative, and for your representation. Thank you. I'm afraid of the dark Where you been? What's going on? Just give me something Or I can sit home I'm in the cloud You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton businessman Eric Scher will reopen five downtown entertainment venues by fall or transfer the liquor licenses to a third party to avoid the city revoking them. Scher reached an agreement with the License Commission this week and has until the end of September to comply. The businesses are Pearl Street, The Basement, The Green Room, The Iron Horse, and Calvin Theater. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera tells the Gazette she's pleased the city has negotiated a path forward as the city's entertainment venues are vital in promoting the arts and fostering economic growth for local restaurants and retail businesses. The Amherst Pelham Regional School District has an acting superintendent. Douglas Slaughter, finance director for the schools, was offered the job and accepted. This meeting comes in the wake of controversy within the Amherst Pelham school system over alleged LGBTQ plus bullying and a Title IX investigation. Superintendent Dr. Michael Morris recently announced a temporary leave because of personal health reasons. Around the same time, Amherst Pelham Education Association voted no confidence in Dr. Morris for what they say was his failure to promptly address the anti-LGBT plus behavior and transphobia among some staff. The Greenfield City Council met last night to continue their work on the FY24 operating budget. The council amended down numerous budget items across the municipality and used the differences to add to the Greenfield school budget, which if voted on as the mayor proposed, would have left the schools with one and a half million dollars less than was requested by the superintendent. Partly to mostly sunny today, not a bad one at all. A high of 68 to 72 with a light breeze from the south. Dry this evening with evening temperatures in the 60s. Clouds on the increase, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Some scattered showers Saturday morning, then a steadier rain developing Saturday afternoon. A high of 64 to 68. Back into the sunshine for Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden y el principal republicano del Congreso de Estados Unidos, Kevin McCarthy, subrayaron el miércoles su determinación de llegar pronto a un acuerdo para elevar el techo de deuda del gobierno federal de 31.4 billones de dólares y evitar un incumplimiento económicamente catastrófico. Después de un enfrentamiento de meses, el presidente demócrata y el presidente de la Cámara de Representantes acordaron el martes negociar directamente un acuerdo. Se debe llegar a un acuerdo y ser aprobado por ambas cámaras del Congreso 
antes de que el gobierno federal se quede sin dinero para pagar sus cuentas tan pronto como el 1 de junio. Vamos a unirnos porque no hay alternativa, dijo Biden a los periodistas en la Casa Blanca, diciendo que acortaría su viaje a Asia y regresaría a Washington el domingo, pero que las discusiones a nivel de personal continuarían en Washington. El límite debe levantarse regularmente porque el gobierno gasta más de lo que recauda en impuestos. Biden partió el miércoles para la cumbre del Grupo de los Siete de Líderes Mundiales de viernes a domingo en Hiroshima, Japón. En otras informaciones, el gobernador de Montana, Greg Gianforte, firmó el miércoles una legislación para prohibir que TikTok de propiedad china opere en el estado para proteger a los residentes de la supuesta recopilación de inteligencia por parte de China, lo que convierte a Montana en el primer estado de Estados Unidos en prohibir la popular aplicación de videos cortos. Montana prohibirá que las tiendas de aplicaciones de Google y Apple ofrezcan TikTok dentro del estado, pero no impondrá ninguna sanción a las personas que usen la aplicación. La prohibición entrará en vigencia el 1 de enero de 2024 y es casi seguro que enfrentará desafíos legales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is our weekly segment with Max Page. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and he has with him and us today an important and special guest who is here to announce a victory for, well, Max, I'll leave the pleasure of the introduction to you. Thanks, Bill. Yes, I have on today Andrew Gorey, co-president of the Professional Staff Union at UMass Amherst. And we do want to celebrate with the caveat that a, a battle is ongoing. But Andrew, I'll turn it to you to say what happened this past week that really uh, is an important battle against privatization and saving jobs at UMass Amherst. And Andrew, Go and Andrew Gorey, your position is? Yeah, uh, co-chair of the professional staff team at UMass Amherst or co-president. Okay, I interrupted, uh, please. That's okay, Max. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so um, I think folks have probably heard out there about how um, UMass Amherst has had an effort ongoing to try to privatize the positions of over 100 state workers at UMass Amherst. It's really terrible. Um, folks have been, you know, facing the loss of their careers, um, facing the loss of their pensions, their state benefits. Um, and facing the, the possibility of being forced into at-will employment where they could be hired or fired at will. Um, so it's, it's just been union busting, plain and simple. But just this past week, we were able to reach a stopgap agreement to the, avert the mass layoff of our members, which is good. It's like a, it's a way, it's a waypoint in this fight. It's not the end, Max, but what it, what it does do is it took a lot of work and pressure from our members, um, but it, Uh, it does give transfer and prom promotional rights to vacant EMAS positions, and more importantly, it does give our affected members a guarantee of, of employment through uh, June of 2025. All right. All right, Andrew. Great. So that's, I mean, that's, that sounds good. So people, there were over 100 state employees doing, serving the university who were threatened with simply losing um, their jobs, pensions, benefits. So that is at least held held stopped for now but let's go back a second 
who are, what department is this? Why would this be happening even? I mean, they're not shutting down the, the computer science department. This is the advancement. So tell us what, who those workers were and why the university even would be thinking about uh, threatening their, their jobs. Yeah, great question. So this is the advancement division of UMass Amherst. And so it's got employees who work for a number of different colleges and departments um, across the university. Um, most of them doing work that that pertains to fundraising for the university, to providing um, support for scholarships um, for colleges and other programs at the university. So crucial functions. Um, so why would they want to privatize these functions? It's a good question. Um, they clearly, um, I, I will say this, when uh, fundraising is done in the public through the university, there's public records of everything. And when things are brought into a private foundation, um, that fundraising goes dark. So you think that part of this may be that they just wanted to have a separate private UMass foundation and so that there, there could not be as much transparency. Is that right? I think transparency is absolutely part of this. And also, um, if it if what happened at UMass Amherst or what is happening at UMass Amherst succeeds and if it spreads to the other UMass campuses, it would provide the opportunity to have all fundraising at all UMass campuses all channeled through one private entity that is controlled from the very top, right? And that just creates a huge um, pool of money to play with, to pay people out of, and to invest and, in, you know, invest in who knows what. Oh, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, Andrew Gorey, the president of this professional staff union at UMass Amherst, um, Marty Meehan, the president of the UMass system, his most close uh, loyal lieutenant, Jim Julian, has retired from public service, but is now going to be potentially or is now the head of this private UMass foundation. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we're talking about Jim Julian. My best understanding is that he is in charge of the UMass Foundation. That's right. And if all foundation functions, if all advancement functions for all the campuses were centralized under his control, like under the foundation, it would be under his control. I have a question. Advancement is a relatively new last 10 or 20 years word for what in the old days we called fundraising. And advancement requires person-to-person -person solicitations. It seems to me uh, unseemly uh, and ill-advised to make your advancement staff really unhappy in dealing with donors. How does that fit into this plan from UMass Amherst to privatize this public function? I think that's a really good point um, that um, you know that the those face-to-face -face relationships those personal relationships our advancement members have in fact been building those up over the course of decades right and we have been hearing from unhappy donors who've heard about what's happening to the folks that they have personal relationships with and you're absolutely right um in in you know advancement and donations and fundraising like personal relationships are everything these folks have been building their relationships over decades. They've been building their skills over decades. And you can't just replace them with the drop of the hat. I, I really do believe that, you know, in the, in the short to medium term and maybe even the long term, you know, even if you didn't care about the state work, even if you didn't care about 
transparency. Even if you didn't care about the way that taxpayer money was being used, tuition money was being used, I believe that fundraising would just absolutely suffer for the reason that you just described. So, Andrew, uh, I want to lift up something that we haven't spoken about is that this victory did not just come down, drop from the heavens. The, the, your union, the professional right. staff union, has been leading a campaign, and I want to give a lot of credit, and I think you would too, to area legislators, as well as most of our congressional delegation, who saw this for what it was, which is a privatization effort. I should say saw it what it is, because this is an ongoing battle, even if those jobs have been, have been at least in the short term, preserved. So tell us just for a second about how the, the campaign you led, because I think it's really um, impressive how you rallied um, the public and the UMass community around something that might seem kind of obscure. Yeah, thanks, Max. That's that's such a good point. This all started when we listened to our members. You know, when when UMass came to us and said that your members' uh, pensions are out of compliance and therefore, you know, they their jobs need to be privatized or, or they'll lose their pensions. That was the threat they were using, right? And we went to our members and we talked to them all and we said, so what's going on? Tell us, tell us how you feel like this affects you. And they were like, hold up. What they're saying isn't true, right? Like, I know what I do for a living. I don't do all of this private work that they say I'm doing. Like my work is absolutely pension creditable. And throughout this whole process, they have really stuck together. You know, ever since the situation started, we have been getting together as a group, like all like, you know, you know, 80 to 100 members uh, of the unit showing up once, twice a week, every week, you know, subgroups working. Our members have really led this organizing effort. Like, and, and Brad and I and everyone else have been really proud to work with them. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned our legislative delegation. Um, Senator Joe Comerford, Mindy Dumb, uh, Representative Mindy Dumb, and our Congressman Jim McGovern have really been our rock in this. Um, they really get this issue that public universities belong to the public and that privatizing state work is wrong. Like, you know. So it's bad for the state, it's bad for the public, it's bad for students. Could you go back for just a second, please, Andrew Gorey, uh, president of the Professional Staff Union at UMass Amherst, and give us a synopsis of what the decision or the opinion was that led to this agreement this week? Um, you're talking about the stopgap agreement? Yes. The, yeah, so, the, I mean... We, um, because UMass has transferred the work to the foundation um, illegally, um, we contend, um, we needed to uh, fight to create a stopgap agreement that would ensure that our members would be guaranteed state employment while we work to win those positions. And back. didn't the state auditor come out with an opinion that was very helpful? Yes, it's it's been very helpful, I think, um, about uh, a, a week, a week and a day ago today, last the previous Thursday, um, the state auditor came, uh, sent a letter to Chancellor Subhaswamy of UMass Amherst, and she told him that in her office's opinion that uh, UMass was in violation of state law surrounding um, what steps you have to take and what things you have to prove in order to create a privatization contract. Um, and that it could not proceed without the review and approval of her office. 
which he shouldn't, yeah. which he hadn't been asked for, and which he hasn't given. That's absolutely correct. Now, I do know that UMass has written back to the auditor's office saying, essentially, we don't believe what we did as a privatization contract. And that's where things stand with the auditor right now, is I think we're all waiting to see what is gonna, uh, what the auditor's office response is gonna be, what the auditor's response will be to that assertion by UMass that what they did isn't a privatization contract. I believe it is, I've looked at the law, I'm not a lawyer, but I've looked at the law and I think it is. So this battle will continue. Andrew Gorey, president of the professional staff union at UMass Amherst, really appreciate your being on because this is a, a fight that's not just at UMass Amherst. UMass Boston did privatization of its dorms. Bunker Hill Community College is talking about selling off its whole campus to a private developer. This continues to be a strategy that is used and it is really destructive of what you said at the beginning, which is thinking of the university as a public institution, as a public good, and it makes a difference if it is uh, run by public employees, fairly paid, benefited, unionized, rather than being um, shopped out to whatever private contractors and developers the university chooses. So this is such an important fight, and we'll have you back on to talk further about where that battle is. Right, because this yeah, fight Andrew. goes This fight goes on. In 30 seconds, Max Page or Andrew Gorey, uh, president of the Professional Staff Union at UMass Amherst, tell us what we can do. We're supposed to talk to our state legislators, to, to our congressional rep. What do we do to help? I would love it if folks would write in to Governor Mara Healy and ask her to weigh in on this. You know, UMass reports to the governor eventually, right? Like ultimately it reports the governor and we need her to step in and say that this is wrong. Okay, we'll leave it there. Andrew Gorey is the president of the Professional Staff Union at UMass Amherst. Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We thank you both and congratulate you on this interim victory and we hope for ultimate victory in the future. Thank you both so very much for being with us. Right on guys, we really appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. 
asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. The drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Welcome to Artbeat with our segment host, Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabel Cassis, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Author, poet, and playwright James Baldwin lived most of his life in New York and Paris, but he also lived in Amherst from 1983 and to 1986, and a current exhibit at Amherst College's Mead Art Museum highlights his time in the region. Joining us today is Lisa Crossman, Director of Curatorial Affairs. Welcome. Good morning. Hello, Donabelle. Now, Lisa, James Baldwin's work and legacy is far-reaching, and we were very fortunate enough, enough to have him here. What is his connection to Western Mass? Yeah, I will answer your question, but I also, if you don't mind, would just love to backtrack for just one second Absolutely. and say um, that this exhibition that we're talking about is, um, is titled God Made My Face, A Collective Portrait of James Baldwin. And it's a, a really wonderful show um, organized by Hilton Owls. Um, so it, it originally premiered at David Zorner Gallery in 2019. And it's such a privilege to be able to have it here at the Mead Art Museum. Um, and it is a special iteration. So in addition to sort of continuing um, the exploration that, that Hilton sets up, which is really, in his words, really sort of like giving Baldwin his body back. So thinking mm you know, of him beyond kind of a fixed object um, and thinking about um, his ideas, his interest in aesthetics, um, his reflection on visual culture, um, you know, his, his uh, experiences with artists, um, as well as an observer. Um, and so it's really, um, there's a lot to dig into there, but in addition to sort of these threads, he also was an Amherst, as you mentioned, between 1983 and 1986, and he taught at the five colleges. Mm. Um, so I think that it's really special to be able to have the exhibition here and to think about connections that he formed, um, for instance, with Leonard Baskin, who is an artist who also taught at the five colleges for decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a beautiful, there's some beautiful portraits um, by Baskin um, of Baldwin. Um, and it's also been really, there are some other archival elements built into the show that reflect on Baldwin's time in Amherst. And it's been really wonderful to hear people tell me about their experiences too. Now, the title of the show, God Made My Face, tell us about that, please. 
Yeah, I think that the title in a lot of ways points to um, the beauty of Baldwin in many ways. And so I think that Baldwin, uh, and I'm going to, to provide an anecdote that ties to the local context to reflect on this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right before the show opened, I received a phone call um, by someone in the area who knew Baldwin very well. And she told me that she was so moved by the title of this exhibition um, mm -hmm. because she felt that many people did not did not really appreciate Baldwin's face exactly, did not see him as a beautiful person. Mm -hmm. um, and she always thought that he was such a beautiful soul and a beautiful person. And I think that it's a really kind of lovely way to sort of access um, that part of the title. And I think the collective portrait part is really important to Hilton's thinking in terms of really trying to open up the conversation um, about Baldwin, um, again, as, you know, um, you know, a black queer man, but also like a, a writer, a man who thought deeply about the world and reflected on the world and, and was multidimensional. And so I think that the show through, you know, reflection from his contemporaries and his, you know, thinking about Baldwin as a mentor and a professor and even thinking about, you know, ideas that have expanded beyond him through the work of other artists is really wonderful. So Lisa Crossman, uh, Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Mead Art Museum of Amherst College, I have a question about the title too, which is why God? Is there some spiritual element to Baldwin that comes out in this? God made my face, just not yes. my face. Tell us about that if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. So Baldwin definitely was tied to uh, religion through his upbringing um, and and also had some experience um, preaching as well. And I think that, um, you know, his ties to the church is definitely part of, of who he is um, in a way. And so that's a really excellent um, question. Um, excuse that. And, uh, you know, and uh, so that definitely ties to sort of the importance of, of highlighting um, God in the title is that that whole upbringing. But the other thing that I wanted to say is actually I um, re-listened to an interview with Hilton earlier this week, a really wonderful conversation that Zwerner hosted um, between Hilton and Thelma. And he talked about this ecstatic experience that he wanted to build into the show of really thinking about the importance of, um, of celebrating uh, individuals after their their death and thinking about you know how people continue to sort of expand their ideas and I think that that's also a nice moment to uh, maybe wrap up this thinking. <laughs> well <laughs> briefly um, just tell us a little bit about Hilton Owls and I know he's also yeah. a resident scholar for this and then tell us just a few artists who are in the show so sure. people can make sure to get there. Yeah, Hilton Owls, many, um, many probably know him as a, as a writer, as a cultural critic. Um, he also is a teacher, so he has been teaching at the University of California at Berkeley. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, um, and he also he curates exhibitions um, as well. Um, so he's done a number of shows, including the one that we have up, and he also was a presidential scholar, so he had a chance to engage with students at Amherst. Wonderful. Now, I know there's a there's a whole list of amazing artists in this show. Uh, Marlene Dumas, uh, Richard Avedon, Kara Walker. How long is this show up and how can people see it? 
Wonderful question. The exhibition will be up until July 9th, so there's still plenty of time to come out and see the show. Um, and yeah, we're open Tuesday through Sunday from nine to five. We're open late on Thursdays. So again, plenty, plenty of time. And it is a, you know, group show, lots of amazing work. Did I just hear correctly? You have some uh, uh, photographs by Richard Avedon in the show? We do. How'd so, you get, how did you get those? Uh, they're actually, well, we got them from the foundation. Um, and uh, these are um, exhibition prints. A lot of the work on the, in the exhibition um, are loans for this, for this show. There are archival elements built in. We do have one work from the collection. And it's worth noting that Baldwin was friends with Richard Avedon, so they had a relationship and collaborated together. So it's very special to have Avedon's portraits of Baldwin included. Wow, what a stunning and profound show. I'm so excited to see it and so happy that it's here in the area. So Lisa Crossman, Director of Curatorial Affairs at Amherst College's Mead Art Museum, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this work. And, and Lisa, just before you go, tell us when the Mead is open, when we can see the exhibit, please. Sure. Um, uh, the Mead is open um, Tuesday through Sunday from 9 to 5 um, and late nights on Thursday. So do come by. It's free. It's also worth noting that it's free. Um, so do, do come by. And if you have any questions about parking, check our website. Thank you so much, Bill and Donabelle. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you both. Lisa Crossman and Donabelle Cassis, what a great exhibit. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. We really appreciate it. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way and I'd have never been aware. But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. And there's a new report on the migrant flow since then. Correspondent Cammie McCormick has our top story. The Department of Homeland Security says during the past week, thousands of non-citizens have been repatriated to over 30 countries. And it claims the process has been moving forward more quickly than before. After months of planning, the majority of the migrants are from Haiti, Mexico, and Venezuela. World leaders meeting at the G7 summit in Japan found out today Ukraine's president 
President Volodymyr Zelensky will be making his appeal for more military aid in person on Sunday. Correspondent Elizabeth Palmer is in Hiroshima. President Zelensky was always invited to address this conference by video. The fact that he's showing up in person is also going to eclipse some of the other items that should have been high on the agenda here. Zelensky met with Crown Prince bin Salman in Saudi Arabia today. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret government documents online is hoping a judge will approve bail during a court hearing in Worcester, Massachusetts today. Jack Teixeira's attorney say he should be released into his father's custody while he awaits trial. They claim prosecutors are unfairly comparing him to Edward Snowden, who fled Russia when he was accused of leaking classified information. A funeral service will be held in Harlem next hour for Jordan Neely. He's the home homeless man choked to death in a New York City subway. WCBS-TV's Elijah Westbrook. Daniel Penny, a Marine veteran, pinned him on the floor of the subway car and held him in a chokehold for several minutes. Now, Penny and other passengers say Neely was acting irate and threatening them in the subway car, but hadn't actually attacked anyone. Last week, Penny was charged with manslaughter. His lawyers say he was trying to protect himself and other passengers from Neely's threats. We've just learned one of two people reported missing after a massive fire at a construction site in North Carolina is dead. The other is unaccounted for. CBS's Nicole Skanga is in Charlotte. Overnight, rescue operations temporarily put on pause after engineers deemed this building no longer structurally sound, now concerns it could collapse at any moment. It'll be a big reveal in L.A. CBS's Jim Crisula explains. The word has gone out. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna is commanding his staff to comply with a request from the county watchdog who ordered dozens of deputies to show their gang tattoos. They were also told to answer questions about violent cliques with... This is CB. Need to hire quality candidates fast? You need Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Finding great people to hire is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. It's pretty difficult, right? Well, ZipRecruiter has mastered finding a needle in a haystack, so they take it to the next level. They make hiring so simple that it's like finding a needle in a needle stack. And that's why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash free. Here's what it's like to use ZipRecruiter. They have so many qualified candidates that it's easier to find the right ones for your roles. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. That's a lot of needles. So how do they do it? ZipRecruiter's powerful technology sends you candidates who are a great match for your job. And you can even invite your top choices to apply. So if you want less hay and more needles, head to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free at ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter.com slash free. Hanging the Dubai moon? Canadian businessman Michael Henderson wants to build a 900-foot replica of the moon in Dubai. The city-state is already home to the world's tallest building. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton businessman Eric Scher will reopen five downtown entertainment venues by fall or transfer the liquor licenses to a third party to avoid the city revoking them. Scher reached an agreement with the License Commission this week and has until the end of September to comply. The businesses are Pearl Street, The Basement, The Green Room, The Iron Horse, and Calvin Theater. 
Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera tells the Gazette she's pleased the city has negotiated a path forward as the city's entertainment venues are vital in promoting the arts and fostering economic growth for local restaurants and retail businesses. The Amherst Pelham Regional School District has an acting superintendent, Douglas Slaughter, finance director for the schools, was offered the job and accepted. This meeting comes in the wake of controversy within the Amherst Pelham school system over alleged LGBTQ plus bullying and a Title IX investigation. Superintendent Dr. Michael Morris recently announced a temporary leave because of personal health reasons. Around the same time, Amherst Pelham Education Association voted no confidence in Dr. Morris for what they say was his failure to promptly address the anti-LGBT plus behavior and transphobia among some staff. The Greenfield City Council met last night to continue their work on the FY24 operating budget. The council amended down numerous budget items across the municipality and used the differences to add to the Greenfield school budget, which if voted on as the mayor proposed, would have left the schools with $1.5 million less than was requested by the superintendent. Partly to mostly sunny today, not a bad one at all. A high of 68 to 72 with a light breeze from the south. Dry this evening with evening temperatures in the 60s. Clouds on the increase, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Some scattered showers Saturday morning, then a steadier rain developing Saturday afternoon. A high of 64 to 68. Back into the sunshine for Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. We have joining us now Michael Clare, Professor Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, a member of the board of director of the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C., and a prolific author on defense and environmental issues. Michael Clare, this, this day in particular uh, has just been so full of uh, reporting on Ukraine. Uh, in the Times, in the New York Times this morning, uh, let me re- read back to you a few of the headlines. Robbed of joy as strikes rattle city, teens laugh to keep from weeping. This about this story about teens in Ukraine. Ukraine desire for F-16s strengthening air defense. G7's price cap on Russian oil seems to have worked. A story that later on, despite the headlines, seems to say, well, maybe not. As Russia fires missiles at Kiev, a blast derails a freight train in Crimea. Chief Justice of Ukraine faces charges in corruption case as inquiry expands. U.S. accounting revision frees up billions. This has to do with, well, an accounting error has, well, allowed the Biden administration to send $3 billion more of arms to Ukraine. What should we be paying attention to? Michael Clare, help us understand what's really going on in Ukraine in that war today, please seems to me there are two things we should be paying attention to, Bill. One is the slow preparation of Ukrainian forces for what is expected to be a major spring offensive in the frontline area of eastern Ukraine. It seems they have been probing Russian positions, they've been attacking Russian logistical hubs, fuel depots and the like behind the lines. They've been pushing back Russian forces at Bakhmut 
so it all looks like they're getting ready, gearing up for this offensive. And there are many folks who believe that this offensive could be the decisive event of the war or at this part of the war. And uh, that leads to the second issue we should be paying attention to, which is talk about what might happen after the counteroffensive, which would be the possibility of negotiations. There's been a lot of talk about that uh, in the Western capitals, in China, in India, in South Africa, a talk of, of some kind of uh, international uh, negotiations to get the two parties to sit down to talk together and reach some kind of conclusion to the war. So all of this is happening in the background and we should be seeing this play itself out in the next coming days and weeks. Well, let me ask you about the future and let's focus for a moment on this one article that caught my attention because of one line in it. This is under the headline, Ukraine's desire for F-16s strengthening air defense. And it says this, British and Dutch plans to help Ukraine obtain F-16 fighter jets have put the United States and some of its closest European allies at odds yet again over what weapons the West should send Kiev to defend against Russian invasion. And then this really got my attention. With no end to the war in sight, the F-16 has become the latest advanced weapon that Ukraine and some of its backers say it needs to stave off Russia, both in the current conflict and for years to come. For years to come, because Russia is there. Even if this fighting stops, what's to prevent Russia from invading again in a year or two or three or five? So that depends on the nature of the outcome. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's too early to see what that outcome is going to be exactly, how far the Ukrainian forces are going to be able to, to advance in their attack. Uh, so uh, it, it, that, that's an unknown. There are, there are multiple unknowns. What would happen if Russia uh, suffers a great defeat, would that lead to a political turnover in Russia? Could it, could it lead to some kind of uprising against Putin with, or within his inner circle? So there are a lot of unknowns about what might happen. In my mind, the long term is going to depend not just on what happens in Western capitals. You know, the, our, our media tends to focus overly on what happens in London and in Netherlands, you talked about, in, in Germany, in France. That's where the reporters are. We're not paying attention to what's happening in Beijing, in New Delhi in South Africa and other parts of the world that are going to have a vote on this this outcome. Uh, my, my guess is that China is going to be a decisive player. It's already begun to show its hand. It, its uh, negotiator, I think, is coming to Russia and Ukraine this week or is, is there now. And my guess is that the Chinese are going to have, 
are going to be a party to the final outcome, and that's going to include some kind of restraints on Russia. Will the restraints on Russia be restraints written on a piece of paper or restraints that involve some kind of international uh, policing of, well, it seems to me impossible. It's an enormous border. How, how, how could a peace agreement be policed, an agreement, a peace agreement be policed? Look, it's there's going to be a peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia. Then there's going to be a larger international understanding of some sort about what what will be allowable and what will not, and 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 that's going to involve all kinds of quid pro quos, meaning that uh, uh, that Russia will be uh, allowed back into the international economy gradually under certain controls and in return for promises, guarantees that that it will behave in a certain way that will be guaranteed by a whole group of international actors, including China, India, and, and these other countries. The, it, it, it's going to have to be some kind of international understanding, maybe written down, but more likely in the form of quid pro quos. And the model I'm looking at that's also on today's news bill is about Assad of Syria being brought back into the Arab League. Now, it took a while, uh, but he's now being brought back in to that world because because he Syria is such a big actor in the Middle East that that you know slowly but surely he he's being reintegrated into the Arab world and it's going to be something like that well Michael Clare professor emeritus of peace and world security studies I would appreciate your explaining this to me there was a lot of talk about before the war began about something that Putin actually has never mentioned as far as I know, which is that uh, somehow the West was to blame for Putin's invasion because NATO was getting closer and closer to Russia's borders. Um, this is not Russia's uh, justification for the war, by the way. Putin says uh, that Ukraine and Crimea are part of Mother Russia and it's ours and we want it and we deserve it back and so we're just going to take it. He didn't say, he didn't complain about NATO. but. There has been a lot of talk about whether Ukraine would join NATO. What's your view of that? Is it a good idea? Well, first of all, you know, that's a big, a big thing you chewed off. I hear a lot about this notion that Putin was somehow triggered or prompted or pushed into a corner where he had to react because of NATO expansion. I hear a lot about that from my friends. And... Um, I, I don't think there's any evidence for that argument. Uh, I, uh, in fact, I believe it's, disprovo it's disprovable by the fact that Putin uh, took, uh, Putin asked the Russian Duma to vote all kinds of money to, to modernize the military to confront NATO, and all that money went to corruption. This is a very corrupt military system where where the money to fight NATO disappeared 
into the you know private bank accounts and the yachts of the oligarchs who control the military industry. So uh, if he was worried about NATO, he would have been shooting the the oligarchs and and insisting that that money be used for for NATO purposes. So that didn't happen. So he wasn't concerned about NATO. Obviously, he was concerned, as you say, about his fantasies that that Ukraine is doesn't exist as a nation and and is part of Mother Russia, just like you said. That's what prompted the war. Now, should Ukraine be part of NATO? Uh, I personally think that that's probably a bad idea. That, but on the other hand, um, there will in the after the fighting and some kind of agreement, international agreement is being written that that uh, that there will have to be security guarantees for Ukraine that that uh, if invaded, it will be defended by a whole host of countries and that its safety will be guaranteed not only by the West, but by China and other countries. Uh, and and there will be all kinds of restraints against Russia doing that. So, Michael Clare, are you saying it's a bad idea, in your judgment, for Ukraine to become part of NATO because if Russia invades Ukraine under the NATO pact, an attack on one is an attack on all, and it is essentially the same as Russia invading the United States and an attack on Ukraine therefore precipitates World War III? I mean, is that the nightmare? No, 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 is, Bill. That, is that the nightmare that, scenario? Or I have, I'm overreacting, I'm being hyperbolic. No, no, my, my point is, I keep coming back to this, uh, is that there will be two sets of agreements. There'll be one between Ukraine and Russia about where the dividing line is. And, and, and in my view, uh, it, it it should be at a very minimum where where the line between Russia and Ukraine forces their forces was on February twentieth, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two. I mean, when the when the conflict began, that Russia uh, removes its forces from all of the territories that it seized after February twentieth, twenty twenty two. That's a minimum. That's going to be an agreement between Ukraine and Russia with the status of forces and the line of demarcation. There has to be a separate international agreement that brings in all the major countries of the world, not just the Western ones, on the future of of European security. And I don't want, and, and that shouldn't be prejudged in advance by whether Ukraine is going to be in NATO or not. Maybe it will be, but that has to be the product of an understanding between all the major actors for them to decide. And if they decide that, good, but let's not prejudge that. It has to be a agreement, an understanding that keeps Russia under control and guarantees Ukraine's safety. We're speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to know the status of this spring offensive. We've touched on it, but I want to know more. The spring offensive, we've been hearing about it for months. It's getting close to summer. Is Ukraine going to attack? Is it going to be a major military operation? And when will it happen? We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 101.5, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Investing your money does not mean having to abandon your core values. Environmental and social governance investments, also called ESG investments, allow you to focus your money in businesses and industries that match your environmental and social values and avoid those which do not. Environmental and social governance investments let you put your money where your values are. ESG investments are just one example of how we create individually designed portfolio management plans for our clients. To learn more about ESG investing in our portfolio management services and for a free consultation, call us at 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section of our website at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, offering portfolio management, estate settlement, and trust administration services. Call 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and a prolific author on defense issues. I would like to know more about the spring offensive, which we've been hearing about for months. Well, it's spring, and summer is coming, and you have used the phrase that we've heard from you and from others, Michael, that this is or could be the determinative uh, moment in the war. Do you see it that way, and what should we expect, and when should we expect it? Yes. So, uh, well, yeah, spring is turning into summer, and I've read a lot of... uh, reporting from the front line and you know they talk about uh mud season coming to an end and 
the ground in Ukraine now now turning hard so that uh, it's usable for tanks. So, so what we know in the background is is that uh, the Ukrainians had pushed all last year for the delivery of heavy weapons, modern heavy weapons from the West, tanks and armored combat vehicles and artillery and the like. And presumably that's now all in place or coming into place. So it's taken a while for them to acquire all that stuff and get the training in it, move it into position. So I, I would say they're nearing the point where they're ready for an advance. It appears to me that they're engaging in probing operations. Now, bear in mind, this is a 600 mile or so front line with thousands, tens of thousands of troops lined up all along this front line. And the Russians have built defensive barriers uh, at every mile or kilometer of the front line. So it appears to me that the Ukrainians at this point are probing for weaknesses on this line so that uh, they're, they're preparing for an offensive mechanized attack, a high-speed attack. Okay. Where that will occur is still unknown to us. Uh, the, the Ukrainians are being very careful about security. So it's assumed that it will be in the southeast that the Ukrainians will attempt to crash through Russian lines and go all the way to the Sea of Avov, Azov, uh, and and break and 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 sever the land so-called land bridge between Russian forces in the Donbas in the northeast and Crimea. Right during during the original Russian offensive. They seized th that land along the Sea of Avov, Azov, and and uh, so have a land bridge from Donbas to Crimea. Uh, it appears as if the Ukrainians want to retake that territory and isolate Crimea and even possibly attack Crimea, which would be a major change in the conduct of the war. That's possible. It's also possible that the Ukrainians will attack in the northeast, in the Donbas region, and try to drive Russian forces out of that area. I don't know. In the past, they have used uh, uh, deception. For, uh, so they may not attack in the southeast, as everybody expects, and attack in the northeast. So I, I, we really don't know where the attack will come, or if it will be multiple attacks simultaneously. But the guess is, my guess is they're going to try to drive the Russians out of as much of the territory they seized in February 2022 as possible and put Crimea at risk. Are a lot of soldiers and civilians going to die? Uh, civilians and soldiers are dying every day, every day. The battle for Bakhmut was a, a, a bloody, gruesome conflict that's been fought for the past year. Why Russia deems that such an essential uh, target is unclear, but uh, there are estimates that that tens of thousands of Russian soldiers died 
in this insane attack to capture Bakhmut. Um, and they've captured about 90% of the city for what that's worth. It's all rubble now. Uh, but they haven't succeeded in capturing the city, and now their forces are being pushed back by the Ukrainians. So it was, as as they call it, a meat grinder, a terrible waste of human life. Sad, sad, sad. And yes, more people will die in this uh, offensive. But my guess is this is going to be a high-speed, uh, uh, mechanized uh, attack. And uh, it'll be soldiers who will who will perish, but not so many civilians. The civilians are dying because the Russians fire missiles at cities, and they've been doing that all along, and they will continue to do it. It's 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 it's. I, I don't I don't I don't have the words to describe. I just I'm not. I think focused on wars as intensely as this since since Vietnam. I, I would like to uh, change the topic a bit uh, and ask you about the meeting of the G7 and what is happening there and what you see as its import on Ukraine and perhaps beyond. So for, for your listeners, the G7 is the annual meeting of the heads of state of the leading Western economies. The U.S., France, Germany, Japan, Canada, France, Italy, U.K., uh, and they meet once a year and to try to, you know, figure out a coordinated Western response to the world's problems. And uh, Ukraine will be on the agenda as they meet this year in Japan. You will be Ukraine. They'll discuss and, and probably exactly what we were talking about earlier. What a what a long term solution might look like. They're also going to talk about containing China, but this was an extraordinary meeting. You could watch it live last night uh, when it was t- today, but but it was the morning there in Japan because uh, the Japanese Prime Minister had the meeting open in Hiroshima and the city that was attacked with a nuclear bomb by the United States uh, on uh, August 6th in 1945, killing uh, 100 million, 100,000 people and destroying the city. And the city of Hiroshima has built a peace memorial there um, with the names of the of those who were lost and remnants of 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 uh, destroyed buildings and pictures of of the destruction of the city and and that's where the G7 meeting began uh, with a visit to the the flame that will uh, burn until all nuclear weapons are abolished from the earth. And it was a very moving ceremony. I, w- I, I stayed up and watched it on uh, live TV. And uh, uh, this is the first time in history that the major powers have met at Hiroshima. It's very symbolic. And it, 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 one hopes that that these heads of state who have never been in Hiroshima before uh, together like this, vi- s- viewing the horrors of nuclear war might might 
make that a priority in their deliberations to take steps to uh, reduce the arms or nuclear arms race that we appear to be on now and think about ways to uh, to eliminate nuclear weapons. So uh, I hope something positive comes out of this. It was a very emotional thing to watch. Was it symbolic and was it planned in advance or was this fortuitous that the uh, no, no, this was the intent of the Japanese prime minister that uh, that, that he wanted when when uh, when th this rotates each year, one of the G7 hosts the meeting and they get to choose where the meeting will be held. And the Japanese prime minister, uh, I'm struggling to recall his name, uh, this chose Hiroshima as the site of the meeting with the intent of bringing the leaders to this peace memorial, which is a, a very powerful a place to see. It's a very uh, striking, you, you, can't, uh, you can't view this without stopping your brain and, and, and thinking about what humans have created with nuclear weapons and what they can do. Right, because there is that one remnant of the city, of the yes. blast. And I have been to Hiroshima. I have seen it. It just makes your heart stop when you see it because it's one thing to see it in a picture and it's another thing to stand there and say, oh my God, this is where a nuclear bomb detonated. It really is staggering. Yes. Well, you could see the faces of Macron and Sunak of the UK and and Biden, and clearly they were moved by by standing there, and they put a wreath, each of them, in front of the memorial. Well, we leave it there, Michael Clare. We really appreciate your insights. We appreciate with you being you being with us so regularly since the beginning, since before the war began and for all of your insights and sharing your understanding. We really appreciate yep. it. We'll be, we, we will be watching this uh, offensive probably unfold in the coming days, and we'll talk again, I hope. We will, soon. Thank you so much. Sure. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton businessman Eric Scher will reopen five downtown entertainment venues by fall or transfer the liquor licenses to a third party to avoid the city revoking them. Scher reached an agreement with the License Commission this week and has until the end of September to comply. The businesses are Pearl Street, The Basement, The Green Room, The Iron Horse, and Calvin Theater. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera tells the Gazette she's pleased the city has negotiated a path forward as the city's entertainment venues are vital in promoting the arts and fostering economic growth for local restaurants and retail businesses.
The Amherst Pelham Regional School District has an acting superintendent. Douglas Slaughter, finance director for the schools, was offered the job and accepted. This meeting comes in the wake of controversy within the Amherst Pelham school system over alleged LGBTQ plus bullying and a Title IX investigation. Superintendent Dr. Michael Morris recently announced a temporary leave because of personal health reasons. Around the same time, Amherst Pelham Education Association voted no confidence in Dr. Morris for what they say was his failure to promptly address the anti-LGBT plus behavior and transphobia among some staff. The Greenfield City Council met last night to continue their work on the FY24 operating budget. The council amended down numerous budget items across the municipality and used the differences to add to the Greenfield school budget, which if voted on as the mayor proposed, would have left the schools with $1.5 million less than was requested by the superintendent. Partly to mostly sunny today, not a bad one at all. A high of 68 to 72 with a light breeze from the south. Dry this evening with evening temperatures in the 60s. Clouds on the increase, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Some scattered showers Saturday morning, then a steadier rain developing Saturday afternoon. A high of 64 to 68. Back into the sunshine for Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build the solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. My name is Silas Kopp. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. We are joined in the studio by Linda Bond and Rebecca Muller, and they are here because we want you to know about the restoration of the Hestia mural. This is the women's mural that is in the Masonic Street, faces the Masonic Street parking lot. It was a really big deal when it was first, first painted. It is an iconic piece of Northampton and Western Massachusetts history and art, and it is going to be restored. Rebecca Mower, you're an artist. You're a Northampton resident. 
and we want to ask Linda Bond because she was one of the original painters as well. But let me start with you, Rebecca, if I might. You're an artist. You're a Northampton resident. What does the Hestia mural mean to you? And what where does Hestia, it's the art collective, it's the name. Explain that to us, if you would, please. Okay. Um, well, I moved here in uh, 1979, and I watched the mural being painted in 1980, and I, I was working in, the, in an office overlooking the parking lot. And so I just, it, it was this fascination of watching every minute step of the whole process and having that delight. Fast forward uh, 20 years later, um, when the city was looking for some people to um, restore it, I and another woman, um, Nora Valdez, um, uh, were matched with each other, and we initiated a pretty extensive restoration. And we also updated it to include historic women's contributions between 1980 and 2003, so that it really continues to be a record of living history. What does the mural depict? I will defer to Linda because she and her team did extensive research on that. Okay. Uh, Linda Bond, painter, teacher, one of the original painters of the Hestia Mural. Mural, tell us what is there. What what does it show? Well, we, um, as a group, had met uh, and thought about doing some kind of public work that had to do with women's history. And when you say we as a group, you're talking about the Hestia Hestia Art Mural Collective? The Hestia Collective. Okay. Originally started through the um, a meeting at the uh, Women's Caucus for Art. And Rochelle Shikoff, um, at the end of the meeting, asked if there was anyone who'd be interested in working on a collaborative project, a feminist project. And so there were probably about 12 of us who stayed. And that group ended up being five people. Susan Pontius, Wednesday Sorokin, myself, Rochelle Shikoff, and Mariah Fee. All artists. All painters, um, all living in Northampton. And we did some brainstorming and decided we wanted to research the lives of women who had contributed to the history and the industries and businesses and so on of Northampton. These are local women heroes. Yes. So, for instance, Sophia Smith is a prominent figure. Um, there are there are a number of women too who are anonymous. So we wanted to also um, highlight the impact of women's work uh, from native cultures to women working in the mills and who were activists. And so some of those women in the mural were anonymous and representative of groups of people. This is why when the restoration happened in 2003, we were able to transform some of those anonymous figures into actual people who had been participating uh, in Northampton's history since the mural was painted. Okay, excuse my ignorance on this aspect, or a number of aspects of this, but how do you go from an idea of women who should be honored in this way to having a very large depiction of them on the side of a building with images that all fit together. Explain that to me, if you would, please. Well, the way it started was we, we each, each of the five of us took a topic. 
So for instance, mine was Smith College. And we were um, working on presentation materials. So we each made a painting, a small painting. I did a watercolor that was sort of a collage of landscape, uh, figure, the gates from Smith College. Um, that was something we used for presentation purposes. Now we were all we all worked in different styles, so we had a portfolio of images that represented, you know, the different aspects: science, education, the arts. We each took a different topic and did research about women who were engaged in important uh, aspects of that. And then, once we were given the approval by the city and by the New England Telephone Company building, who owned the building at the time, we worked for over a year on a drawing that some- This is a drawing on the side of the building, no, or this, this is a drawing on a piece of paper? This is a drawing. At the time, I was uh, running the City Art Guild in Northampton with other people, and this was a um, organization we started after graduate school when we couldn't find teaching jobs. <laughs> and so we were we were so up, much for graduate school, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were upstairs above Foster what was Foster Farrar at the time, and he was really interested in in building an arts kind of community here in Northampton, which at the time was still a very sleepy place, and there wasn't much going on. People were starting to move up from New York and opening businesses. So we took over two floors of the building above Foster Farrar and um, taught classes, and we used that City Art Guild Incorporated as our umbrella organization. Here's, here's, here's where I would like to go from. I understand you've made the paintings. I understand you've selected the, the, the subjects you were going to paint. I understand the research that went into it. What I don't understand is how you go from those paintings to this large mural on the side of a building. Are you painting by... By numbers, there. I mean, are you? Is it all predetermined? Are you improvising it all as you paint on the side of the building? How did and does that work? Well, we started with the drawing, which was the scale to the wall, and it was of, obviously it was an inch to a foot. And we had a roll of paper on the wall at the City Art Guild, and every night we would, for a year, come there and argue, discuss, figure out what the overall composition would be. We decided to use kind of this landscape composition and in the foreground to have to collage these various elements. So they weren't they were like little naturalistic scenes within this larger scheme. You're on the side of the building. You have No, we're not on the building. Not yet. We're on we're we're on in, on paper inside. Okay, but when you get to the building. So when we finish the drawing. Yes. And we're happy with the drawing. Yes. We do a tracing of it. We grid it and we use that as a way to bring small 1 foot square uh, blocks up to the wall. So we had to grid the wall as well. This is an ancient form like uh, this is how how frescoes were made in in the renaissance you know scaling up a small drawing to a large drawing on the wall so we had transferred the linear drawing using a grid method onto the wall we did a color sketch and we tried to keep the color simple like flat areas of color and then working on top of those flat areas of color with detail so we had paint that we color 
we number coded. And so the, the, the gridded drawing had sort of a paint by numbers kind of thing. These are the colors we're using here, here, and here. So it was a complicated process. Okay, it's a complicated process, and now it needs restoring. Let me turn to Rebecca Moore. Why does it need restoring, and what's going to happen? Okay, so we've discovered that um, the, the methods and material and techniques um, that the original artists used was excellent. And each time, and, and on average, it, t it needs to have some work and restoration and care every 20 years. We are now, and and so we're now. And here we are on the twenty. Here we are now at the forty-third year, and it's a, exactly twenty years from the sec, the first, the first larger scale restoration. There's um, often there's just literally the physical um, surface of the wall starts to deteriorate. In this instance, it's not It's not clear to us. Um, it appears as if some damage may have been done to the wall by some outside intervention, and so. We are going to bring in a conservationist this summer um, to do a very light um, restoration of it. And then the critical element, because now all of us are in our 70s, um, we're going to be working with um, key organizations in the community, in the city, to, to undertake a plan for long-term ongoing stewardship and sustainability of the mural. And will that include any repainting? Today, uh, we'll do, um, in the areas that are damaged, that if, if anybody wants to go and look at the wall, you'll see these like drip marks that kind of go over this faded area, this almost foggy, clouded area. And we're going to go in, and the technique that they use is almost like a little um, dot, dotting of color in. Um, so it's not a full repaint of any single area. It's just touch-up. It's a kind of touch-up technique, almost pointillist in, in nature, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then the eye fills in a lot of it. But crucial to, for its long-term preservation and for yes. its remaining as this right. iconic, uh, iconic piece of art here in Northampton. Yeah. It, it will, if we don't do it this summer, it's going to continue to deteriorate. And then I think it's important to know is then there's a lot of um, product out there now where you then can put a ceiling uh, surface that really protects it. And this has been the secret to the, I think, its longevity. We are speaking with Rebecca Muller and Linda Bond. We're going to hear more about the preservation of the Hestia mural right after this. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with a mystic smile. Is it this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7, and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. Here comes the 
You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things? Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Linda Bond and Rebecca Muller. They are members of the Hestia do we still call it the collective? Are you still members of the collective? I mean, uh, come on. Well, it's, we're it's, it's been it. a few. It's been a few decades. We're st- we're calling this relationship because Rebecca wasn't one of the original artists. We're we're calling it the Hestia Rest- Mural Restoration Collective. Yeah, terrific. The the future, the past, and the present all come together. I would like to know this because I'm really interested in the preservation aspect of this. There are a lot of murals that have come up uh, in Northampton, been painted in Northampton recently, and the public art that is now available around the city is much more expansive than it was 40 years ago. Uh, is this part and parcel of what you're looking at here, and is there an influence that Hestia will have on the rest of the city in this regard? Rebecca or Linda, um, either one? Yeah. Uh, we, I've been, uh, from the beginning, we've been working closely with the Northampton Cultural Council, and um, um, their leadership, Brian Foote, has deeply invested in public art. And so we are undertaking um, uh, an initiative of pulling together city officials, city planning departments, and uh, the Historic Commission, uh, North, uh, Historic Northampton, the Forbes <coughs> Library, so that we can identify um, both archiving and sustainability thinking and planning for the mural, but also for the richness of public art that's evolved in the city. Right, because you have public art outside. This is New England. There is inclement weather. It's going to wear. There's going to be a need to restore and to repair from time to time all of this art. You know, I was in Philadelphia quite a bit the last couple of years because I had a large exhibition at Drexel University and did a project with the Eastern State um, Penitentiary there. Their murals, their city is filled with murals, and there is an absolute commitment to um, preserving, protecting, and commissioning that kind of work, and it's, it's quite amazing and I, I have been coming back to, I don't live in Northampton now, but I'm here often because I have family here. And the new pieces that I'm seeing every time I come have been really impressive. Yeah, it's, 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 it's inspiring. I would like to ask this. I'm of a certain age. I remember the fundraising for the initial mural as well as some 
for the restoration 20 plus years ago. I'm sure this costs money. And it was a community endeavor by the, we, this community will honor the women of our history. That was it was the entire community event. And the, the support was really astounding. I'm sure that that kind of effort is needed now and money is needed. Can you tell us tell give us some sense of what the cost of this is going to be and how we can help? So we've identified a goal of $28,000 for this restoration, and, if, and as there's money left over, it will be turned into base funds for a sustainability plan. We've been very fortunate to get several um, uh, grants, foundation grants, uh, from including the Beverage Foundation, Family Fund, the uh, Markham Nathan Fund for Social Justice, the Cultural Council, and now we're working with um, major donors, businesses, banking institutions, and we've raised over th uh, half of the funds that we need to date. And um, so we're at this sort of final thrust, and we have a number of mechanisms that people can, can give. Um, Let me twist your eye arm and ask yeah. you to tell us about that. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, first of all, we have a, a, a GoFundMe campaign, and so people who are interested in a simple, easy way to donate is just to go on GoFundMe, Hestry Mural Restoration. Okay, that sounds easy enough. If we Google uh, Hestry Mural uh, Restoration, will we be able to get there? Will there be a link? Uh, if you put in GoFundMe there, uh, it, it will, and then put even just the word Hestry Mural, it will come up. GoFundMe, Hestry Mural. Mural. You'll get there. You'll you can get make there. a contribution. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have a minute left. How many people will be painting, who will be doing the final restoration? How many artists involved in that? Well, the, the conservator will be doing most of the work with an assistant. And I would say on and off, there will be probably several of us helping out. And when will this work begin and when will it be finished? We're planning on it happening in July, and we're estimating that it would be a couple of weeks. And then it will last for another 20-plus years? We're hoping. We don't know how this—we we have to also create a, um, a plan for preservation so that the, the accident that happened this time with something being sprayed on it won't happen again. It's a brilliant mural. It's such a great contribution to Northampton and to our history and to women's history. We thank you both so very much. Rebecca Muller, Linda Bond, thank you so very much. Thanks to the Hestia Collective. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for thank having you. us. <laughs> but the prettiest of them all, without a shadow of a doubt, is a six-foot-tall beauty named Lucia. She's got the big hazel eyes that make the boys go crazy like... Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25 percent. 
please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and cooler planet Earth.